like to explain a bit about why I'm working on this topic of militarism, because it's actually something that not many people have worked on. Um, it depends how you define militarism. We have lots of people, of course, who've worked on the military, the history of the Chinese military as an institution and its politics and so on. But as I'm going to explain in a minute, I, that's not really what I mean by militarism. My interest in militarism did grow out of my interest in nationalism, as Professor Foote said. You know, that's really where I came from. My PhD many years ago was on Taiwan and China and the issue of Chinese nationalism. And it developed in various directions over the years. And then around about the time of the financial, global financial crisis, um, I began to think that there are lots of people writing about Chinese nationalism, probably too many to be honest. Uh, you know, it's such a, and it's such a fuzzy concept and so forth. It can mean almost anything, really. Um, so I thought, for, partly for that reason, the idea of militarism is more focused, but also it was driven um, by events. Now, how do I get started? Okay. Um, it really arose like this. Um, around about the time of the global financial crisis, I was reading various books and articles and talking to people from the PRC. And I saw them referring to something that looked quite distinctive. It wasn't like the kind of nationalism we'd seen before. Um, it was referring very much to a certain set of values about being masculine and the fear of effemination and the need to kind of go back to some kind of military spirit. Um, and I included part of that in this article which I published, I think it was 2011, um, which grew out of the 2008 material. Um, <coughs> where the basic argument in there was that we had two strands of thinking coming together in Chinese nationalism. One was the old nationalism of the student movement and so on. But the other was a kind of um, militaristic nationalism that was coming out of maybe the military itself, but also some of the nationalists themselves who were becoming more interested in military power and military ways of thinking. Um, but also from the government and from the party. And what made me think that was as I was doing my research, I kept seeing people referring to this thing called national defense education and saying how, how good it is, it's poor fang jiao yu. And I started looking at that and I realized that there was a whole government policy on national defense education, which was, the law was passed in 2001, which was the time of the China entered the WTO, of course. So we had a very interesting, something interesting was going on here that as China entered the WTO, entered globalization formally, at the same time the party and the state were putting in place this education policy, starting with very young children and going actually up past the university to the workplace and so on, to educate the whole society in military values. So you, um, that led me to the second article, which came out in January, that Professor Foote mentioned, which looks at this policy of national defense education. I'm not going to talk about that here today. Uh, you, hopefully you'll read the article. I'd be very grateful if you do. Um, but uh, the, uh, what this article led me to is, as I was working on the current policy that was put in place in 2001, I saw a lot of the commentators in China, there are a lot of workshops and discussions and conferences about this national defense education. And they were saying themselves that it came from this earlier period under the Republic, um, the early Republic. And they were talking about various 
key figures at that time who were inspiring this policy of militarization. So that led me to this new project, which I kind of finished and almost ready to publish, but I'm still now confident enough to present it to people like you to get some, some to avoid me making the, the worst mistakes before I do try and publish it. But the new project, I had to go back to that period to try and understand where this militarism comes from and its significance. And, 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 um, and I found this absolutely fascinating because the first thing I realized, of course, was how big the impact of Japan was. Now, as someone who studied a lot of contemporary Chinese politics, of course, I know that there was this period where Japan had a big impact on China. But I just didn't know how big it was. And it is enormous. Um, and the more I look at it, the more I'm kind of overwhelmed by just how big the Japanese impact was. And we're talking here about the period from 1895, really, the, the defeat of the Qing Empire by Japan. Uh, when all those students went over to China and started studying um, the Japanese success story, how to be a great power, going up, I suppose, into the 1920s. But it's that it, really the period between sort of 1895 up until really around about 1911 when they all go back to China and set up the republic. That's the process I was very interested in, 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 in understanding because I think if you understand that, you can understand a lot more about the whole discourse of militarism now, which is actually looking back to that period as kind of we can learn something from it. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do, is trace the genealogy of this militaristic policy um, back from the present to that period. So at the moment, I've done work on the contemporary stuff, and I've just finished that work on the, this period, 1895, up until the 20s, really into the 30s, a little bit. Now I've got a big chunk in the middle that I've still got to do, which is the kind of impact of Bolshevism and Leninism, and so on. Um, but so let me talk about where I am now with this project that's looked at this Japanese impact. The first thing uh, is that uh, because my work before that was looking very much at education policy, and I realized just what a rich source of material this is for any kind of research, I thought that's the place to start. And then, of course, I looked at the secondary material that's been published, and there has been some fantastic historical work, and I would mention two books in particular that are really worth reading, and that's the book by Robert Culp and the book by Peter Zarrow. Peter Zarrow's book came out, I think, last year. Robert Culp was about 2013. They're both looking at education policy in, from the late Qing dynasty to the Republic. So they're not looking at militarism in particular, but there's obviously they have realized that there is a lot of militarism coming from Japan in that period. So in a way, I was kind of crestfallen because I thought these people have already done it, and they've done it much better than I could hope to do. But they are looking at it uh, as um, historians rather than political scientists. So I think they raise a, a really important question in their work, which I'm not really satisfied with. I don't think they've answered it. I think the question is really important. Essentially, what they're saying is, if you look at the um, way that education policy in that period, uh, you had a lot of people went to Japan and they brought back this idea from the Meiji period of how to use military education to build a strong society, strong state. Um, that's clear in the textbooks and the curriculum and so on. Um, 
So where does it lead us? It leads us to this idea of the, the idea of the citizen, which is emerging at this time, has some relationship with this militarization. Now, what is that relationship? Because intuitively, you would think these are opposite, really, but being in the army, you know, is the opposite of being a citizen. We think of citizens in liberal democratic terms, usually, rooted in the idea of individual freedom, individual rights, and so on, which seems the opposite of militarism. The concept that people like Zara and Colt come up with, I think is influenced too by Tang Xiaobin's work on Liang Chi Chao, is um, the idea of civic republicanism. That what they're saying is, yes, you can see this militarization, but what it, it's actually quite positive in many ways because what it does is it creates um, a sense of the community. That if you're, the way that people were taught to be citizen soldiers was also made them think of the nation and the state. So they became engaged with movements. And you can certainly see this in the 1930s. And this is Kolb's argument. But by the 1930s, this militarization had got quite strong, obviously, with the invasion from Japan and so on. And you had spontaneous kind of movements of patriotic youth who would, want, who would demand from the government you know, to be trained and so on and to go and fight the Japanese. Um, Karl even takes this into the Maoist period and says things like the Great Leap Forward and I think even the Cultural Revolution um, show this kind of uh, new citizen concept, civic republicanism, where people were concerned about the community as a whole. The assumption being that under the Qing dynasty everyone was only thinking of their family uh, or their village. So that is a, an interesting concept, civic republicanism, but I'm not really happy with it, to be honest. Um, because uh, it seems to me to stretch the idea of the civilian just too far. Uh, you know, I'm interested in militarism because I see it as part of a kind of more problematic nationalism that is the, the opposite of, of individualism and is used to kind of suppress the idea of the citizen. Uh, I, I see it as actually an attempt to discipline the citizen. So this idea actually came to me actually quite recently, and I'm rewriting the article now. And it came to me because I had to give a first-year lecture on Foucault and his Michel Foucault and the, his concept of power. Mm -hmm. And I've been struggling with this idea of civic republicanism, and thinking there's something wrong here, there's something missing, you know. And when I gave the lecture on Foucault, it kind of clicked that it's the, it's the theory of power that these people are assuming. They're not because they're historians. Um, they're not really thinking very much about what they mean by power here. They're assuming very much a kind of theory of power that comes from the state and this relationship between the citizen and the state. It's what Michel Foucault would call juridical power. And Foucault does actually write quite a little bit about this idea of sovereignty, the mod how the modern idea of sovereignty that emerged in Europe in the 17th century was also the condition for the idea of citizenship and civil society. But what Foucault says, which is quite new, is that at the same time as you get the idea of the modern state emerging in Europe and the idea of the citizen and civil society, you get another kind of power, which is disciplinary power. And that's where his big contribution to social science is, I think. Um, that disciplinary power is something that is much more distributed around the system. You know, he talks about capillary power. It's something that doesn't really come from the state. It's made possible by advances in technology, in the way that society is ordered, 
you know, if you get army, if you get military conscription, the, uh, then that gives the state certain power, but it also gives individuals power. So I don't want to go into that too much now. I hope that will become a bit clearer by the end of the lecture, what I mean by that. But it's a, it's a different sense of power, and the idea is that it's there to discipline civil society and discipline uh, the individual that emerges with modernity in Europe. And of course, when we get to China and Japan, this is very interesting, because the period we're talking about with China, from the Qing to the Republic, is catching up with that idea of the sovereign state and the constitutional state uh, that's introduced to China uh, in the last years of the Qing dynasty, actually. Um, in uh, 1908, there's a sort of provisional constitution or a draft constitution before the end of the dynasty. So there's an acceptance of the idea of sovereignty and power, which, can't, which implies an idea of the citizen, but then what do you do about this wretched citizen? Because the citizen becomes a threat to the sovereign, to the state, just as it did in Europe. So you have to find a way to somehow create citizens, but citizens are going to be well behaved. In other words, citizens who are well disciplined. And that's, so that's how I see what's going on now with this period from the late Qing to the early Republic, that the, the idea of the constitutional state is coming in with the idea of citizenship. But there's an awareness amongst the political elite that this is highly dangerous, so the idea of the citizenship has, of the citizen has to be disciplined. And the way to discipline, or at least one of the ways, is militarization. And that is essentially what happened in Japan, and it was very successful uh, that they introduced under the Meiji Constitution, a constitutional monarchy. There are huge debates in Japan, of course, between liberals and conservatives, Confucians, modernizers, westernizers, and so on. They came to this kind of solution, especially after the defeat of China, which gave the militarism a huge push forward. This solution that if we teach everyone to be a soldier, a citizen soldier, um, in Chinese, um, then you, you solve the problem because you're citizens, but you're also soldiers. So you're highly disciplined citizens. Okay, so um, that's the kind of way, I think, to uh, explain this idea of civic republicanism and why it's not emancipatory in a way. It's kind of a way to introduce modernity while also reining in the idea of citizen individuality and so on. So that's where my sort of hypothesis is at the moment. So let me try and explain some of the content of that and the evidence that I've got in this article. I think um, here I need to go back to what I mean by the concept of militarism. Um, we always need to define our concepts and um, Actually, I don't think Kulpo Zara do define it, you know, but um, uh, I think it is important to, to avoid, first of all, the idea that we're talking here about the military. We're not talking about the military as an institution. The military have a role to play in militarism. But militarism is much broader. And you can find plenty of examples in history where militarists are opposed by the military. The military are a professional fighting force. Militarists want to use military ideas and values and so on and structures for political purposes, which think of Mussolini, for example, you know, or Hitler. Um, 
and, and they don't get on with professional soldiers quite a lot. So it's important to think of militarism as something that is that can use the army for political purposes, but it's broader than that. And I use the definition from Martin Shaw, who's <coughs> a, a historical sociologist at the University of Sussex. I think it's a very good definition, the penetration of social relations in general by military relations. That's the first part. So we're talking about the penetration of the whole society by military relations in a hierarchy, um, and possibly violence, um, bravery, these kinds of values um, that penetrate the society, patriotism, I guess, <coughs> but certainly discipline. Uh, the second part of the definition is, is, is also very important, that he sees it as a process, that militarism is extended. Militarization is a process. Militarism is extended, and in demilitarization it contracts. That's important too, because I think there's always a danger here when, if we ask about Chinese militarism, everyone says, oh, you're saying China's like Germany and Japan, you know, before 1945. Um, Shaw's point is that it's part of modernity. You know, all, you could find it in this country. Certainly, there's a lot of writing about the new American militarism, highly militaristic society. We can ask this of any modern society: How much militarism is there? Is it growing or is it shrinking? I think it's very valid to ask this about China, partly for the reasons I started with, that we see evidence of militarism in government and party policy. Um, but we could ask it even without that of any society: How much militarism is there? So, you know, it's not assuming that it's going to be like the rise of Germany and Japan, that whole rise of China discourse that we have to escape from if we can. So it's a useful definition. And um, it's, um, it's it, I, if we apply it to the um, education policies and materials from Japan and China, we can see uh, this working out, what I started off with, this relationship between sort of sovereign power, juridical power, and disciplinary power, Foucauldian disciplinary power. So if we start off thinking about sovereign power and how that's presented in the education materials, remember, we're talking here about um, 1908, the first outline constitution, so it's before the Republican Revolution, it's the last years of the Qing dynasty, where they attempted to come up with something that was really copied really copied the Meiji constitution, which of course itself came from the Prussian constitution. So it's very much a Prussian element of state building built into it, the strong state, which builds up civil society but maintains a certain control over it, very hierarchical. Quite compatible with Meiji Japan and even with the Qing dynasty, because parliamentary organizations don't have any real power, it's still in the hands of the sovereign, of the emperor. The outline constitution um, kind of makes this very clear in its first article that the great Qing emperor will rule supreme over the great Qing empire for 10,000 generations and forever. That is taken from the Meiji constitution. So it's a very hierarchical constitution. We can see in the textbooks from this period, we're talking here um, about uh, um, the 1902 textbook, yeah, um, from China, where they have to teach kids, school kids, um, what the emperor is, but they also have to teach them what a constitution is and what a citizen is. And there you can see the wording that the great Qing emperor rules all under heaven, protecting our citizens. Citizen concept comes in from Japan, warming, 
uh, protecting the citizens for millennia. So the citizens, the Guomin, love the country and held the emperor, and so on. So the citizen is coming in here, but it's very hierarchical. There's no real power attached to this citizen. What happens when we get past the Republican Revolution to 1913? It's a problem because, you know, the, this, the con this, uh, everyone's fighting about the, con the Republican Constitution. Um, there's no real idea yet of what the Constitution is. There are vague ideas of what a republic is and what citizens are. But the people who are really in control are, are kind of people like uh, Yuan Shikai. You know, he's the one who emerges. So the education policy has to reflect that there's still a lot of hierarchy built into this idea of the citizen. And so if you look at an education uh, textbook from uh, 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 1913, we can see that it's kind of ambiguous. For thousands of years, the great affairs of the country were governed by the emperor. Now the republic has been established, the people, it's hard to translate this, I should have put the Chinese, it is the Chinese is very ambiguous, even more than this. Select, support the wise, and the leader who rules for the whole country is the president. So it's a kind of you know, very ambiguous sense of what citizens are. It's still very hierarchical, and that does of course reflect the um, elite politics that are going on at the time. I think here, again, and this I think is one of the problems with the books by Zara and Kolb, is they don't look enough at how education policy is shaped by elite politics. Now, if you do that, it begins to make a lot more sense, this kind of ambiguity and the struggle over the concept of the citizen, because um, there really there's a lot of continuity. You know, the elite did not change in Yuan Shikai, who was the most powerful man under the Republic, was still the most, sorry, under the Qing dynasty, was still the most powerful man under the Republic. And he, of course, proclaimed himself emperor in the end. And so his ambitions were there, and he shaped education policy. He was very involved in it, it's covered in the article. He, he was hands on, he saw it as a resource, political resource. Inspired very much working hand in hand with Jiang Zhidong, who was, the, I think, probably the most brilliant think of the last years of the Qing dynasty, but is seen as a conservative reactionary. He's not that at all. He's the one that people associate with this kind of formula of take the East, take China as substance, you know, take the West as function, which he doesn't actually say. I don't think I've looked everywhere to find where he says this. He doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. It was Liang Chi Chao who opposed this on him because he didn't like him. He was jealous Liang Chi Chao. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, so those personal things are important. But Jiang Zhidong, if you read his Chuan Shui Pian, which is this kind of pamphlet he produced after the defeat by Japan, it's really interesting. There's a lot of militarism in there. You can see that he's already beginning to think about we need, we've been defeated by Japan, we need a constitution, we need to modernize, but what are we going to do about the idea of the citizen? And here, we need to, militarism comes in already under Jiang Zhidong, who dies in 1909. So between 1895 and 1909, he's very, he's quite open that militarism is a value that's going to help to save China by militarizing this modern idea of the citizen. And of course, the place he looks to, as the Yuan Shikai, is Japan, just being defeated by Japan. And these are the two uh, actors who sent the students to Japan. It was their policy to learn about modernity. 
So um, it's not surprising that when we look at the textbooks from this period, from the transition from Qing to Republic, we see that there's a lot that the, the temptation to use militarism to discipline the new idea of the citizen is, is very strong and fits in very much with the way of thinking of the elite. Um, and, um, and we can see that coming through in the textbooks. So one of the nicest things I did as part of this project was some archival work. And I went to Waseda University last year. Waseda is um, uh, the most important university for this period in terms of China-Japan relations, because just about everyone, all the Chinese went to study at Waseda, and then they went back and took over rules of China. You know, I mean, most of them were at Waseda at one point or another. But also at Waseda, they've got a great collection of um, journals, student journals that the Chinese students published in Japan at the time. There's also the Diet Library in uh, Tokyo, which has got actually a lot of it's digitalized now. And it's mm -hmm. great to see a lot of textbooks from the period, Japanese and Chinese. <coughs> and I also went to the National Textbook Library in Taiwan. It's quite new. There's a textbook library there. Um, and so I've got whole stacks of all these amazing kind of material from the textbooks of the time. And, um, you know, you have to be careful how you use this stuff, but I think we can see some very interesting sort of preliminary observations. If we look, these are textbooks. Um, so if, if Yuan Shikai, uh, under the influence of Jiang Zhidong and so on, was bringing in, looking to Japan, Japanese education, military education, bringing it to China to militarize systems, what kind of material were they working with? Well, this is, um, uh, a military exercises book produced in Chinese by a Japanese author. So it's for Chinese students in Japan. Uh, and you can see the kind of, you know, there's one type of education, how to use a gun, um, marching around in formation, this kind of thing, military drill. This is from 1914, um, and it's, um, so we're in the early years of the Republic, this is uh, Japan, 1945, just before the defeat of Japan, this is full of civil um, military education. This is from 2008 in the PRC, okay? Mm -hmm. um, this is the materials they're using to teach school children in the PRC now, which is what the last article was about. Um, and if you look at that, you'll see that, that according to the National Defense Education Law, they should be teaching children how to use weapons. Uh, at primary school, what is a clash? Difference between an automatic and a manual loaded, all this useful information. It's, they're not going to go and fight. So, what is going on? You know, there's something else going on here. But this is why the genealogy is interesting, because I think you can see it unbroken from Meiji Japan, Chinese in Japan, through the Republic, up through to the present. Um, But there's two types of um, what that what was brought back from Japan was the idea that if you're going to discipline the citizens using militarism, you're going to create military citizens, gunkokumi um, or jingguomi. Um, then you need mili military citizen education, jingguomi jiaoyu, um, which is a term that comes from Japan and is still being used in China. Now. Um, this is the disciplinary part of it, kind of disciplinary part, you know. So you're teaching people to walk around the house, you know, formation and stuff, discipline. 
Another part of it, though, which is also extremely important, is moral education. Uh, and this, in the Meiji context, was very much integrated in with the military drill. And I think this is particularly important because um, here we see a um, moral education book, Shin Shao Shun, um, from 1923, Shanghai. This is Tokyo, 1943, so the height of militarism again. So the Japanese militarists at the height were teaching this kind of Confucian morality. Um, and here we see 2013, uh, this kind of moral education that they're using in China. This has a history. This idea that you teach morality is certain type of hierarchical values, uh, which goes hand in hand with the modern idea of the military, the modern military. So it's combined with tradition and the, the hierarchical sense of Confucianism. One interpretation of Confucianism that fits very much with militarization. Um, we can see this if we look inside some of the books at um, the Shushin and Shoshan. So, you know, again, the the, if you read Chinese, you'll know all these characters. It's exactly the same, which makes it so easy to transport from Japan to China. And all of these things are associated very much, taken from the Confucian classics. And we see in the Japanese textbooks this kind of the key issues, key things are, are hierarchy, you know, respect for the family, bowing down. Um, fighting, bravery, you know, stories of slaying demons, um, and also, of course, military parades, bringing in the modern sense of the sovereign and the uh, imperial palace. So this is an 1899 textbook from Japan on moral education. Um, if we look then at China, 1907, um, so here we're, um, again, before the Republican Revolution, the last years of the Qing, we see these things are really imported from Japan. Uh, sorry, no, this is sorry. Um, this is still Japanese, 1907. I'm trying to show you how. If we go back to the first one, you know, this is kind of 1899, so it's kind of quite traditional in a sense, you know. And then when we move forward a few more, you get the impact of two things: the defeat of China and the defeat of Russia, of course, in 1905. And you see much more modern kind of militarism combined with this hierarchical morality. The teacher, you know, with his obedient students, um, lessons about heroes from, this is from the Sino-Japanese war, you know, the father, the son seeing his father who goes off and dies heroically on the battlefield. Um, the family hierarchy. And going to school, I notice here you see the traditional clothes and the, the, the cadet's hat and the military Hat, which of course they still wear in Japan. And it's weird because when I go to Japan, I say, oh, there's no militarism here. And you see all these kids going into school wearing these kind of uh, military cadets' uniforms, all the girls wearing sailor uniforms, you know. No militarism. Okay, we'll come back to that later. But you can certainly see it here. Um, so let's look at China then and the Chinese textbooks. If you look at this is a 1913 uh, textbook um, on Chinese physical exercise. Um, and here we see, again, uh, so the, uh, the first lesson is going to school. And you, can, you probably can't see from there, but the children are wearing military uniforms going into school, with caps and everything. Obedience. I wish, I wish it was like that. But, um, and uh, look at the playground. You know, they're all like soldiers, and what are they playing? Kind of guy with a flag, and the others attacking him, military games in the playground. So this is the early years of the Republic, when you have 
the struggle to bring in constitutional government and the idea of a citizen at the same time is being disciplined by bringing in this concept of the good citizen is essentially the soldier citizen. Um, uh, we can go up through the 1920s and we see these themes more or less stay the same. Uh, you know, the flags change a bit with the high file flag and so on, you know, but they're still wearing the uniform, still lining up. And we see then the beginning of this um, Shangul um, education, appreciating the military education, Shangul. And Shangwu is literally appreciating the military way or something. It's hard to translate, but it's probably the closest to the sense of militarism that I'm talking about or Shaw's talking about in the Chinese context. And it was one of the things that I noticed looking at the post-financial crisis literature in China that this concept of Shangwu, you know, appreciating the military, was being used a lot in the literature. I think that's what led me into this because I was I did a Google, what does this mean, Shangri, you know, took me to all this stuff. Kind of. mm -hmm. I didn't just use Google, but you know, it kind of made me realize that people were talking about it a lot, you know, and it has a history. And of course, it's the counterpart of when, you know, the, the idea of culture, when, uh, so you've got when and Wu. Um, and this is what's happening here, is we need to increase the Wu, the, 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 the military side of our values and not let the wen get too strong because that could make us weak and, and effeminate, you know, which is, again, part of the discourse now. The ultra-nationalists in China are really worried. Too much culture makes people like women. You know. um, that's what they're saying. Some of them. Um, it makes you weak. You know. uh, look what happened to the Song Dynasty with that poet who was the emperor. You know, that kind of thing. You know. uh, so it's the idea that you have to inject a lot of military values into the citizen in order to survive in this Darwinian world of struggle. Um, so uh, that gives you a sense of the content, but I think to understand this, and this is covered by Zaro and Cole, they look at this stuff, you know, and I think that's, it's only part of what they do, they've a whole load of other stuff as well, like music education, geography, and so on, it's really great work, you know, and all I'm trying to do here is contribute to that by saying, I, I think that this military side is downplayed in their conclusions, um, and I don't think they really explain its function. And to understand its political function more, we need to look at some of the people who did write it, a lot about it at this period. And I looked at a number of people, um, in particular this guy Tsai Er um, and uh, Zhang Baili. Um, these were students who went to Japan. You know, they were followers of Liang Qichao, which is interesting because Liang himself writes quite a bit about militarism in Xin and Shuo, the new people. Um, there's a whole chapter in there on militarism, on Shang Wu, which people seem to forget about. Um, so Liang Qichao very much sees militarism mm -hmm. as a part of the new citizen. Uh, and these thinkers, though, these were cadets, so you know they're really interesting because they went there and they entered the Chinese, the Japanese military academy, mm -hmm. and were trained there. Um, and they also wrote a lot in Yang Chao's journals, and then they set up their own journals too. And that's what I was doing in Wasega, was reading their material, what they were writing about the military citizen. They were fascinated by this idea in Japan, and they both went back to China and played very important political roles. Again, we need to think about the early Republican elite, Yuan Shikai, general. People like this went back, they didn't like Yuan, they spent a lot of time fighting against him, but one thing they all agreed on was that we need militarism. You know, they, they agreed with Yuan on that. We, it's gonna make China strong, we need military citizens, and they got it from Japan. So in the article, there's a lot of 
analysis of what they write about it. And what struck me, and this really made sense when I was looking at Foucault again, um, was that these were, they were way ahead of Foucault, you know. I mean, they're talking about power as chi, you know, military power as chi, it circulates through the whole system, through all of us. It's the chi of the war, it's the, it's the chi of the state, of the country, of the nation. Uh, so these were early Foucault, you know. They really were, honestly, they're way ahead. Like most people, you know, Sun Yat-sen was way ahead of, you know, um, Benedict Anderson, right? I mean, talking about constructing nations and so on, it's amazing. But Tsai Erli and Jiang Baili, uh, you know, in Japan at this period, both went back, set up military academies, mm -hmm. uh, were, were given prominent positions in um, Yunnan, uh, in particular, was Tsai Erli, trained um, a whole cadre of, mm -hmm. of people. Many of them went on to be communist leaders, which I'll touch on at mm -hmm. the end of the lecture. Um, so it's really good to look at what they actually said about it. And I don't have time to go into it at the moment, but we can discuss it in the Q&A. Um, but, you know, you can look at the titles of their, um, of, of their articles, um, uh, which um, I haven't put Sayers up, but Jiang um, Baili, you know, the Jung Guo Mei Chi Jiao Yu, and the Guo Hun Pian, Zhang Jun Ren. You know, this is about military citizen education, the, the spirit of the nation, of the state or the nation, the true soldier. This, um, the, uh, the new kind of university. And all of this is about this concept of how can we use military values um, to create a new kind of citizen who will, A, know that they're a citizen, an individual, with rights. So they talk a lot about rights. But B, they're also soldiers whose higher duty is to the nation, the state, and they have a rigid sense of discipline. And they're looking here very much as examples like Sparta and Prussia and so on. And they're linked in with um, very much this German constitutional idea. And one of the, I don't know if you know the book by Tang Xiaoping on Liang Qi Chao. He makes a very, in, I think it's chapter five, very good argument that Liang Qi Chao, uh, you know, the main in, big intellectual powerhouse that these people were following, was struggling with two ideas of constitutionalism. One was the French, which was revolutionary and dangerous, and he turned against that because he thought it was destabilizing. And the other was the German conception. The Japanese also bought in very much to the German conception of, 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 of constitutionalism, a very disciplined sense of it, uh, which of course we know what it led to in Germany, this idea of the military state. Um, the Japanese did that under the, especially members of the high command and the navy and so on, setting up military schools all over Japan in villages, because China, Japan, even in the early 20th century, is very much like China. They, if you look at um, some of the leading uh, Japanese military figures at the time, they thought they couldn't get a good army together because everyone was focused on their own village. So they used military schools in all the villages to try and create this sense of a nation and self-sacrifice and hierarchy linked in with their version of the Meiji constitution. That's what impressed people like um, Tsai Ern and, and Jiang Baili. And they took that back to China, as did Yuan Shikai. So you had, on the one hand, Yuan Shikai um, promoting this through his education policies, and you had these new kind of revolutionary cadet figures forming alliances also with other parts of the of what was going to become the Kuomintang, you know, the, the Nationalist Party, Sun Yat-sen and all those people, who could all kind of rally around this sense of this is where 
a, a certain kind of power has to come from. If we're going to maintain stability and discipline as we move to a new kind of modern state, we've got to use this militarism somehow. So there was no real opposition to it. And I was very interested to look even at a figure like Tsai Yuen Pei, who um, was the first minister of education in the Republic. Didn't last very long, but he then became um, president of Peking University around the time of the May Fourth Movement. He stood down. Tsai Yuen Pei is often seen as a kind of influenced by John Dewey, a kind of American influence, liberal. But you read his work. Um, I bought this in China uh, last year. Uh, uh, it's a book, a collection of Tsai Yuen Pei's writings on education. And the, the, the title is Zhongguo and the Shouyang. So it's that Shouyang idea from Japan again. Um, that uh, what runs through Tsai Yuen Pei is very much this Japanese idea, again, of creating a certain type of morality, and um, which is, is a big tension for Tsai, because he also went to Japan, and he spent more time in Germany. He was very influenced by both Japan and Germany before he was influenced by Dewey and American liberalism. So in Tsai, if you read through the stuff he wrote, he does talk about military education. His first speech as Minister of Education, he says we need this military education because China is very unstable. And uh, and it's something we've got to use. Uh, and this idea of hierarchical morality and so on from Japan is still very much in Tsai Yuenpei's curriculum and his thinking about education. So even someone who we see as a very liberal person kind of buys into this. So there's no real opposition to it. You know, uh, it seems like common sense, I think, because it works in Japan, you know, and it works in Germany until 1918, anyway. So, um, <coughs> If we link it in, that's why I think we shouldn't underestimate it when we see it in the education materials. We should realize this is very much something being used by the new emerging political elite, and it's used in their struggles with each other. You know, so it's all about elite struggle as well. That this is a form of power. Anyone who wants to emerge on top of the power struggle needs to buy into this kind of militarism. Most of the warlords use this as well. Well, some of them didn't. Really just kind of bandits, but some of the uh, warlords uh, who had studied in Japan as well also were very much influenced um, by this kind of education. So there's not really any resistance to it at that time. Um, I need to watch the time, don't I? Uh, so I just want to um, kind of move on a bit, if we can see that happening in, at that earlier period. What about communism? Uh, and what about nationalism? You know, when we see the new Kuomintang, uh, the Kuomintang um, take this a step further, under, especially under Chiang Kai-shek after the Northern ex Expedition. Uh, even that brief period of liberalism under Tsai Ing-wen, that's gone. It's partification of education. There's no doubt now that it's there for propaganda purposes to build up the cult of the leader Chiang Kai-shek with his nice Japanese uniform, because Chiang, of course, was in the Japanese army. Um, he was a cadet. And what I found very interesting is some work by um, a Japanese scholar, um, whose name I can check in a minute, um, uh, just came out, an edited book I picked up a few months ago in, in um, Taiwan, um, produced by Academia Sinica, uh, where he looks at Chiang Kai-shek's speeches in the 1930s during the New Life Movement. And what's Chiang Kai-shek talking about? His life in the Japanese army. Mm -hmm. 
and how great it was because he remembers the soldiers rolling around in the snow washing their face with ice cold water and kind of you know having this militaristic disciplined lifestyle this was when china was being attacked by japan and chiang kai-shek was saying this is what we need. We need to be like the Japanese. I was one. You know, I was there in the army, and I know what the secret to steely sort of macho success is. So it was really interesting to read the work by a Japanese scholar looking at Chang's speeches in the uh, early 1930s, and actually going up into the 40s as well. And I think even in Taiwan, he was looking back to his time in the Japanese army where he was a cadet and then a soldier in the cavalry, I think. He spent most of his time watching the horses. But, um, uh, and then, of course, we get on to the communists. This is really interesting, and I'm only beginning to work on this, but you know, just the style of clothing tells you something, doesn't it? You know, where does this clothing come from? Where does this uniform come from? It comes from Japan, you know, which came from Prussia. So you know, the Mao Zedong suit or Sun Zhongshan suit is really the Nakayama suit. You know, it's the, it's, 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 uh, of course, Sun Yat-sen's name was Japanese, yeah, John Shan is a Japanese name, Nakayama, which he picked up in Japan as an alias. And so the John Shan suit is the Nakayama suit. Um, and uh, even Mao is wearing a Japanese militarist sort of costume. I'm so, okay, it's irresistible because you can see the, the, the imagery carrying on through unbroken. Which leads us on then to the question of communism and militarism. And this is the stage, as I said, I've begun to do some work on this, but it's going to be the next big part of this project, which I hope may be a book one day. Um, and this is the part about the communists and the impact of Bolshevism and so on. But before we look at Bolshevism, we have to realize that the early communists, before they knew anything about Marx or Lenin, were steeped in that period of education from Japan. Mao Zedong himself, I'm sure most of you know, his first article was about physical education in Xinjiang, New York, yeah, his first article in 1917, I think, wrote an article saying we all need to go out and do lots of exercises to make the country strong. Yeah? Um, <coughs> look at the founders of the Red Army. Ye Jianying, the student of um, Tsai Er, I think, at the Yunnan Military Academy. Zhu De, also a student of Tsai Er, brought up with that mili Japanese military training. Wang Zhen, uh, uh, Marshal Wang Zhen, who liberated Xinjiang in 1949. Um, if you read his biography, he thinks back. He, before you know, his school days, he thinks back really nice. You know, it was great. We were learning about this shoyang, this uh, morality, about how to be strong and be, you know, it's in the article. Same with Nye Rong Zhen. Again, his early school days, he looks back to that period of education. It's really shaped by that model coming in from Japan. So we have, if we start to realize that these people's ideas were probably formed, a lot of them, before they knew about Marxism or the Russian Revolution or anything, um, they were already steeped in militarism. And I think most of them, probably including Marx, didn't, uh, including Mao, didn't really read much Marx, to be honest. Um, but what was, why was militarism useful? To build a coalition. You know, these were the people that Mao needed to, to oppose his opponents in the party, in the factional conflicts of the 30s and so on, you know, the Moscow-trained people. So what could they all agree on? What language did they all understand? They understood power comes from the gun. You know. um, so I think, um, again, this is where the article finishes off, because I need to do the research on this period. 
But it's a tempting hypothesis that it explains, uh, it's another one of the links between the militarism now in China and the militarism back in the early 20th century, that you get these very powerful people at the top of the party who still see militarism all the way, all the way through as a resource. And maybe we saw that disappearing for a bit. Um, uh, oh, this is nice, because um, here we see, um, again, to show you the kind of continuity of the education materials into the early PRC, um, this is, again, the lesson on going to school, 1913, the kids in their uniforms going into school, 1931, 1933, still doing it. And the first of the PRC textbooks, um, this was 1948, 1950, Xinhua book. There they are again in their mouse suits going into school. You know. So I think there is evidence to indicate that there's a linkage here between the militarism. But it's something that gives a continuity and again, I think one of the big things for historians is that to get away from the idea of the revolution as a rupture. It's not, you know, these elite carrying on through. Um, uh, and, and now, um, I guess, down to the present day.